Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, episode 159. Brendan here with Mark, October the 16th, 2020. Take three or take four. We've been having a bit of trouble with the internet today, haven't we, Mark? But we'll get there. Now, all our banter, Mark, we'll have to start again. So how have you been? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more interested in how like how you've been. How that, all that coughing and spluttering in the in the redacted versions. Yes, well, I wasn't going to mention that, but since you have, yes, I've been a bit hay feverish lately, So, but the tablets work well, so I just take the antihistamine and when I remember, and they work well. So all good, Mark, all good, and it is spring here, as we were talking about off-air or during the recording that didn't work, and uh, we're coming into summer next, aren't we? And I'm not looking forward, Mark, to some... Very, very hot weather and wild weather, which I'm sure we'll get. We'll get, and I don't want any bushfires here, Mark. Yeah, we've put a bushfire ban up, Brendan. We're not having any bushfires or wildfires for those of you in the US and other countries. Now, I don't know what else we can talk about because I've got to tell you one <laughs> quick thing. We're, we're going to be punchy, and I've just got to tell yes. you a really interesting thing. Al's surgical table broke, um, and uh, and what happened was we wound it up too high, and it locked in at about seven feet, um, and so it became very difficult to do surgery and an occupational health and safety risk because at any moment it could have um, like suddenly dropped down on someone, or <laughs> you could imagine you could imagine the so, problem. So we. So what- why did you have it up at seven feet foot? <laughs> I, I imagine that the staff were trying to clean all aspects, of, as they do uh, once in in a while in the surgery. They give it a deep, deep clean, and um, and they probably wound it up to make sure it was easy to see underneath. But then we couldn't get it back down. I thought you might be doing a butt exam on a on a little animal, and you had to need to have it um, above your head too in order to see things. Well, maybe Shaquille uh, O'Neal had, had done his vet degree, and we were we'd given him a job. No, none of that stuff. It was just simply an exercise. But the interesting thing in um, in doing that was that we pulled it apart, we undid the stainless steel cover, and I I want you to guess what mechanism drove the you know the hydraulics. That uh, got the table to rise. What mechanism? Yes, it? a car yeah. jack. It was a f- car jack. It's just a, ah. a, a red car jack, the standard sort of yes. car jack that you get from uh, super cheap auto. Um, <laughs> so I was amazed they'd they'd welded on a couple of little pedals to extend through the um, stainless steel wall and made the necessary attachments to the main stem of the table and um, and crikey's it works like a 
charm. And um, very high tech. We've had someone have a look at it. Uh, just um, they actually just whacked a d- bit of WD forty on it and gave it a good kick, and it slowly settled back down from seven feet to the standard. Well, sometimes the simplest things are the best, Mark. That's well, that's what Annie says to me <laughs> anyway. Um, very frequently. I want to have a bit of a shout out, Mark, to the country with one subscriber or listener, and this month or week, sorry, it is Bolivia. We have one listener in Bolivia, so hello to you. It is a, Please say hello back. Uh, and we, as we always say, we'd love to hear from uh, everyone, but particularly those listeners that are in the uni listener countries. And, and and you know what? I would have um, I would have thought we'd have more than one listener in Bolivia. That would have been my guess. Yes, and luckily we've got more than one listener in the USA. Otherwise, it would be a Unabomber. <laughs> so a big shout-out to our supporters. And for those of you who don't know about it, you can become a patron of the Vet Gurus. So go to our website, vetgurus.com, and click on the link to patreon.com, and you can throw us a bone, which means give us a couple of dollars a month or more, and it will help go towards our costs of the podcast. So it's much appreciated. And also thank you to our main sponsors, and the one we'll shout out today would be Microchips Australia and Doug, um, and he does a little bit of research for us on the side. So thank you very much, Doug, and I always butcher all the um, all the descriptions of all the products that Microchips Australia sell, including their microchips, but they're very good products, and we use their MIDI chips, which are the mid-sized chips. Which ones do you tend to use in the exotics, Mark? The MIDI chips, they're the, the mid-sized ones. We, we sort of um, occasionally have had use of the really small ones. You know, we've had a couple of frogs that we've had to stick them in, but, um, but by and large we stick to the MIDIs. Yes, the MIDIs. Uh, the Maxis, they're the best. So that's Microchips Australia. Go there, buy them, buy them in bulk and um, use them. They're good. That's all I've got to say about Microchips Australia. Now, Mark, I'm going to take the first news story and we're going to be very punchy this week. And it's a pretty quick one here. It's about new treatment for canine ocular condition using turmeric. And US researchers produced, produced a therapeutic drug derived from turmeric, which has been long appraised for its natural anti-inflammatory properties, and they're using it in uveitis, Mark, Um, and they've been finding that it works, and it helps. Um, In a paper published in Science Advances, they tested the anti-inflammatory properties of curcumin, the compound found in turmeric, and discovered that when processed to a special nanoparticle formulation to boost absorption, and everything gets better when it's made as a nanoparticle, doesn't it, Mark? The natural compound is safe and effective at managing uveitis without any known side effects, according to their little study. So very interesting, and we certainly have lots of lots of um, tasty meals with turmeric. Do you turmeric much in your cooking, Mark? Well, I'd be lying to say that I do a lot of cooking in the first place but when I do <laughs> eat I do love when you the, uh, when you order, do your uber order uber eats order I, I do ask them for meals that contain some turmeric <laughs> for sure turmeric um, yes it, this is a a, two, a twin uh, you know a sword with two sides because um 
it is good that there's a um, anti-inflammatory effect for um, conditions like uveitis um, that um, is outside, you know, our current steroidal slash non-steroidal sphere. But I just worry that um, because I don't know, Brendan, would you have people that call up sprinkling turmeric in their dog's eye, their their rabbit's eye? Do you think that um, stories like this lead people to make unrealistic assessment of the value of turmeric? It could. It could. Um, yeah, I'm sure it will. <laughs> we'll, we'll just charge them the the uh, the foolish surcharge when we have to. Yes, them. which which dramatically increases depending on how foolish they are, doesn't it, Mark? Yes. Well, my so that's my news story. My news story is um oh, really I'm really excited about this um and geez. I, the, the, there's a couple of aspects to this story that um, that really um, rock my boat. Um, the story is the discovery of a very well-preserved um, bear, a an extinct species of bear found encased in ice, so that um, that all its organs, including you know even its nose, were um, really precisely frozen and intact um, and um, and allowed scientists to have an exceptionally accurate um, opportunity to study the extinct species in some some precise detail. Um, radiocarbon dating discovered the age of the remains. Um, at least the early suggestions were that, that they might be 39,000 years old. And this, uh, this is part of a bigger story where um, reindeer herders across the Siberian tundra make a little bit of side money um, in finding, um, whether it's mammoths or bears or um, extinct animals across the the, uh, the grazing fields for their reindeer and, um, and then make some money as they report them to universities and museums for further study. So... Um, and the other aspect of this, Brendan, that I'd be interested in your opinion is that um, that you know maybe some of these frozen um, and they look looking at the photographs, I think it's highly unlikely. But you just wonder whether there might be one or two cells they can harvest from something like that's been frozen like this and um, Jurassic Park. I know, I know. Do you think? What do you think about that? That's looking pretty. Um Smelly that um, once they've <laughs> dug that up, I think. I think it's starting to defrost that um, bear there. So I, I wouldn't be banking on it, Mark. But yes, I, I get your drift. I get your drift with that. Uh, it's. Um, I've got one a pretty horrific picture there of the mouth there, isn't it? Uh, it's not a um, very attractive picture there. And we'll link to these articles at vetgurus.com. I don't know whether I've got anything more to say. What was the name of the um, I was going to say, island that was found on? <laughs> when we distribute these articles to have a talk about, I did notice that that you gave the names, um, the Republic, the um, the researchers' names. Um, I managed to talk about that whole article without having yes, without I, mentioning Maxiv Chips Chip. Rasov and um, Lena Grigorieva. Grigorieva. <laughs> Yes, Lena. Uh, <laughs> it was found on the what the Bolshoi Lyakovsky Island, wasn't it? it was I'm, I'm very Republic. impressed 
I'm very impressed. You know, we'll have um, listeners <laughs> from that region telling us we butchered everything about that article there, Mark. But um, but that's what we're here for. We'll we'll take the punches and we'll roll with them, won't we? And speaking of punchy, Mark, we're going to jump into our our main main topic this week, which is one we've been sort of planning well for at least fifteen minutes, and uh, we want to talk about. Something that a lot of vets who are not dealing with unusual pets or reptiles very often will still be exposed to, and that's shell repair in our turtle and tortoise species, so Chelonian shell repair, Mark. So I'm going to kick it off with asking you, um, do you see many of these? And what's your first step with them, Mark? I see an awful, awful lot of them, Brendan, Um, and particularly this time of year when um, the female turtles are leaving the water to go and lay eggs and the males are um, hopping between ponds to see how many females they can find, we see a huge number of them. And what do we usually do? Well, I'm I'm upset to report that... um, a large part of what we do is decide how many of them we're going to actually treat and how many we're going to euthanize. Um, there is certainly um, some very difficult decisions that have to be made very early on that involve the extent of the injury, the damage to the pleuroperitoneum, the contamination, the pain, um, and the resources. The, these cases often take a year or two to be, you know, um, to be be back in a situation where they can be released to the wild um, and um, and we have to have um, perfect circumstances for their care. And so that would be the first thing we do, Brendan. We it's do an excellent also. point, Mark. It's an excellent point. It's making decisions pretty early on because if you've touched on a couple of things there, the prolonged recovery time with these. Um, so you need to make a decision pretty early on. Um, how severe is the injury with these, especially the wild ones, I suppose, with some of the pet ones that the owners are willing to spend time and effort um, and and money um, with with trying to treat them. But we make decisions like a lot of wildlife, unfortunately, um, fairly early on deciding on, on factors like, um, you know, how severe is this? And it's I think a lot of people make the mistake, don't they? A lot of vets um, who are inexperienced with dealing with these species make the mistake of focusing on that fractured shell and not and forgetting about um, the potential other injuries. And, and I think it's the usual. I don't know what they told you in vet school, Mark. They said broken bones can be fixed. Forget about the broken bone. Concentrate on the other injuries, the soft tissue injuries and the other injuries of the animal. They do, they do, my experience is that they do often have significant soft tissue injuries that, um, you know, particularly the uh, nervous system can be dramatically affected by significant fractures to the shell and and often there's significant hemorrhage as well. The, there are quite pronounced, um, uh, quite large blood vessels on that pleuroperitoneum and, um, and of course, the bony structure of the shell um, and trauma will cause them to have significant hemorrhage. So there are other factors um, besides the actual fracture, as you said, that need to be considered. So it's a process of doing a triage, isn't it? So it's trying to get information early on um, that will potentially make that decision on when you go ahead with treating or not. But bearing in mind with these cases, with these shell repair cases, you need to start thinking from 
Well, before that animal comes in, what are you going to do with one of these if you do go down the track of treating it? Where is it going to be rehabilitated or at least um, placed while it is rehabilitating, Mark, um, for the many weeks, if not many months, if not a year or longer um, while that shell is recovering? And if you haven't got somewhere to do that, well, you don't, and that might then end it at that point mark and end up being a, a euthanasia case with them. Having said that, do you ever, and this is an off-the-cuff one, do, have you ever had any that you just leave and you do not repair the shell? And what? how do you decide which ones that you might leave it, a crack that you regard as not not a critical crack in a shell or the, or the bridge region? The, the, I suppose the key thing there is that we look for uh, circumstances because there are some... Uh, as you highlighted, maybe in the bridge or uh, at the caudal part of the carapace where a significant crack will be obvious. You can see like there's a big step, but to lever that piece of bone back into position um, is, well, runs the risk of creating a whole lot more damage. So if we don't have the fracture uh, unstable. If we don't have the fracture extend to the pleuroperitoneum and we can uh, manage the fracture so that contamination is not a major problem, then some of those fractures, you are precisely correct. There are some turtles in the wild right now who have a step in their shell that is healed over with an epidermal covering. I know that um, that we uh, cared for for several months before we were happy that uh, that it was all healed up and um, it wasn't worth uh, putting the turtle through the pain and risk of extending the fracture by levering that little step back into place, Brendan. Yes. So let's get back to the basics with that. So um, the way I assess those and deciding uh, uh, has has it got more severe injuries or not do we need to euthanize that animal or not it is getting back to basics and it's doing the same sort of process as we would do with any animal that's injured it's trying to it's doing the obvious ones like radiographs for instance but um, doing blood taking bloods on them and and providing that initial supportive care that that um, emergency care um, fluid therapy um, pain relief um, almost Certainly, starting antibiosis in them if it's um, not going to be euthanized fairly fairly early on, and and waiting, Mark. Um, oh, you hit the nail I, on the head, Brendan. But... And I, I th- yeah, I think a really important part of the process is not jumping in and, and thinking that we need to repair that shell today um, or tomorrow. Um, waiting to see if any signs of those internal injuries or other injuries that may may be inapparent when it's brought in um, are revealed. And it's it, it's giving that supportive care and a tincture of time to see whether or not we have more serious problems going on with that animal that then indicates that we need to either fix those problems first or, or decide that, hey, this thing's too far gone and we need to euthanise it. It's so true, Brendan. It would be the first thing, uh, and I know, like I was probably guilty of it as a younger veterinarian, that I would focus on the fracture um, and be urgent about fixing that, but you've summed it up really well. You need to put that to one side, that we will sort that out in due course. You need to be patient with that and focus on the whole the whole animal, um, review the extent of the injuries, review the degree of hemorrhage, 
um, make a reasonable plan for stabilizing the fractures. And the, the fracture repair might even be, you know, as long as um, two weeks down the track, uh, even longer if you've got, uh, you don't want to be hit putting those fractures back in place with heavy contamination and no antibiotics on board. Exactly. And part of that basic workup, we mentioned radiographs there, and you mentioned the one of the frequent causes of these injuries is that um, that that gravid um, female crossing the road. I'm looking for somewhere to to put those eggs. Um, so we not forgetting to at least do plain radiographs on these animals, um, if if not ultrasound as well, to get a bit of a feel for hey, have we got a female here, and is it full of full of eggs in there? Hey, what are we going to do? Um, because that does complicate matters with them early on, um, fairly early on about making those those decisions about where we're going to go with that animal over the next few days or few weeks, Mark. So the, the basics of those, uh, that analgesia, antibiosis um, and, and, and fluid therapy, et cetera, we won't cover in detail, but it, it's there are specifics that we would use for reptiles that we may or may not be using in other species there. Um, do you want to just briefly talk about some of the generalities of of the choices for those types of things well i think you definitely have to have uh, opioid level analgesia and i think that um it's uh, in my experience the the chelonians that we deal with um depend on uh um mu agonist um uh, level analgesia and so I think that and the other thing is that the you need to research the doses because they the doses that we frequently use with other companion small animals are woefully inadequate for most reptiles um, so um, I think um, following those little bit of extra research with um, with the opiate pain relief is critical in these cases um, antibiotics, I think um, uh, th um, that we are lucky if we can keep the wounds uh, um, from severe contamination and we can debride them. Um, but then we also do need to keep them on antibiotics for an extended period of time. And because they're in the water and um, the aeromonas organisms and related organisms tend to be the main contaminants, um, the ceftazidum, fortum, commonly used uh, um, in many reptile practices, tends to be one of our main focuses. But it's not the only antibiotic that would be suitable in this circumstance. And, um, and, uh, there is some literature on using um, uh, more commonly held antibiotics in rep, uh, in uh, companion animal practice in Australia. So um, there are options for people there, Brendan. And of course, um, fluid therapy is best. You know, our long neck turtles give us that bloody beautiful jugular vein to access and provide them with um, either an intravenous catheter or um, we've had some good success with intravenous catheters in the jugular in the long neck turtles um, but you've got to be careful about using uh, intrasolomic fluid and uh, we would probably if we couldn't get a vein we might even look for uh, intraosseous catheter with some of our turtle patients yes great summary there mark so i know it's a lot of lot of detail that needs to be filled in there for for those listeners who aren't used to dealing with these species, but we could 
we'll, we'll do a, a more prolonged, painful care <laughs> of of yes of uh, of reptile emergency care and supportive care in in one of the future podcasts, Mark. Um, I'm, I'm and while you do it, you yep. about um, because it's a commonly. Uh, um, discussed thing with these patients that, um, and obviously talking about fluid therapy and, and uh, intraosseous catheters, it quickly becomes something that you've got to have access to the stomach to provide them with some nutrition and possibly longer term fluid. Do you place O-tubes in these guys? I have, yes. I certainly don't do it with all of them, but it depends again on how severe that um, injury is and and how long it will be, you think, until it can start or wants to eat on its own and where you are placing that animal. So as we're doing all of this, we're, we're thinking, okay, who who can we contact? Where is this turtle going to go um, for its rehab uh, before it's released back into the wild if it's a wild one? And the same story, if it's a, even more so if it's a client-owned one. You know, is that client, it's picking the client, isn't it? Is that client going to cope with the many months of of care at home um, and supportive care and and um, we, we should talk about putting the animal back in 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 water environment. Mark about the recommendations for that with these shell injuries as well, um, and 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 whether or not um, the client will cope with that whole process and seeing this this repair that we've done and having a turtle that looks a bit like Franken Franken turtle um, because we can end up with a, a fair amount of hardware um, in in that turtle um, so we need to pick the client and and the easiest thing might be to put an o tube in that turtle for that particular client but another client they might not cope with with unplugging the the little port there and um, um, tube in that um, turtle, although it is a fairly simple procedure to do, isn't it, Mark? And and it's a very effective way of keeping the nutrition up to Chelonian. So um, I'd, I'd suggest it's something that those without much experience with it um, have a go at it um, because it's, uh, it, it's something that's very rewarding to do. Um, would you say the same mark or not the opposite i'd agree entirely it's a it's um and it's interesting because i think you 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 were hinting at as soon as people talk about esophagostomy tubes uh you know lots of well i know when i was a younger veterinarian i'd it would generate some trepidation but as you said this is a relatively easy procedure to perform um the difficulty is more in the maintenance and the the uh, the routine uh, use, um, and so having the right client, as you said, is right. But if you've got a good client, um, the procedure is relatively easy, and I encourage people to have a go at it. What do you think about the dry docking story, Brendan? Um, the, the, it's a it that's a very very important component. Yes, well, we could talk about dry docking all night, couldn't we? But I, I think in that initial period, it is it is providing at least some humidity, if not some area that that animal can bathe in. And and a good friend of ours, Doctor Robert Johnson, had um, a little um, 
homemade sort of variation on the little um, what did he call it? What did Robert call it? Um, his little um, turtle steamer, I think he called it, didn't he? <laughs> That's um, exactly what he called it. A turtle steamer, and uh, um, shout out to Robert. Um, that that's very effective. So basically, it's a, a little enclosure with a false bottom, and underneath that false bottom is is the water component. So the turtle cannot um, cannot um, submerge itself in that water, but um, it has a little cutout where it can access the water. So you might be having a little feeding dish, for instance, um, and, and it, it may or may not then take fish or whatever food you've put in that little feeding area as well um, but it's also providing humidity because it's um, you have a heating um, element of some description in there so it's providing that um, high humidity to to help that turtle um, because yeah we don't want the turtle with a, a big open salomic cavity that then is is diving into water there mark um, um, and it's not leak proof <laughs> Because we may run into troubles there, so it's a bit of a. But there's, there, there is some uh, some vets I think who argue that um, you should let it um, jump back into the water reasonably soon. What's your thoughts on that, Mark? I'm a big fan of um, of not letting infection get in the wounds, and I think um, the the water. Um, facilitates that process and I, I completely get the argument that um, that their well-being, their behavior, um, their their hydration status and renal function, all these things do depend on um, access to water um, and so dry docking does entertain a certain risk. Um, but I, I generally prefer um, that uh, that we're we're protecting those wounds. We do use um, various uh, waterproof dressings. They don't allow for you know complete and permanent um, uh, swimming, but um, they can buy us an hour or so of um, of fairly safe access to the water for particular turtles. Um, so yeah, it's all it it is a little bit of a controversial area, but I'm a, a fan of limiting the time that they have in the water when they have significant fractures. Yes, same here, Mark, and certainly for a reasonable length of time. Now, speaking of the fractures, we should basically go over the the principles and, and some of the techniques that are used, and there's lots of different variations of the, the hardware um, and, and techniques that are used in these, and I don't think there's one particular technique that's any better than, than others. And there's, I think there's a few that's gone out of fashion, and that includes the the old surfboard repair kit, Mark, um, with with the um, with the um, um, what are fiberglass, fiberglass, and the and the glues that are used with that, um, because the main concern there is that we do not want any anything sort of dripping down in between those cracks there. So the principles of treating them, apart from cleaning it as best we can to try and um, limit the amount of infection in that in that wound um, through that crack there is to to do the obvious is to stabilize that joint or that or that crack or that um, um, that bone break um, of that carapace or plastron or bridge of that turtle or chelonian to oppose the edges and, and ideally like you do with any any orthopedic type surgery the idea would be also to provide some compressive force across that um, break there um, which will help with the healing process and you may or may not um, gently sort of if it if it's 
hasn't happened recently if it's one that's been brought in and it's a it's a fracture that's obviously a few days or, or a few weeks old um you may even be sort of um debride in the edges there um a little bit rougher than you'd you would be one that's happened um a few few hours ago mark um any other sort of comments on the on the actual principles of of the of the healing and how we how we bring that together to try and optimize the chance of it getting better i think the key thing to summarize it is that you want to treat them like bones they you these are fracture repairs and um and you you know the basic principles that we use for all fracture repairs that we want good reduction we want uh, um circulation you know f- fracture fragments that we can see that are disconnected from the pleuroperitoneum and not attached to adjacent bone, they're not. They're going to end up as um, uh, necrotic. They're going to be um, uh, no good. So those basic principles that we use for all fracture repairs uh, are the best way to go. And of course, um, not only has the fiberglass gone out of fashion, um, it really uh, doesn't. You know, it provide it doesn't provide an environment where. It acts. It, the theory was that it acted like a band aid to allow healing, but every single case that I've seen a uh, year or two down the track after it's had fiberglass or applied has had significant necrosis and secondary infection concealed by and probably exacerbated by the fiberglass. So it's not just out of fashion, Brendan, it's completely contraindicated. So, what is the fashion mark? So, what's some of the techniques that have been used by? By successful treatment of these cases, well, well it, it's a, an area that um, that you know is only uh, limited by um, people's imagination, and I don't have much imagination. So the techniques that I've found successful are um, to place bone screws in the fracture fragments, and then cyclage wire um, with some tightening to provide those compressive forces across the fracture fragments. Those, that technique, of course, creates new wounds in the uh, fragments, and so um, you you have to plan that very carefully and make sure that not only the fracture heals, but also the wound that you create with the bone screw heals. And some people these days uh, use other structures like um, uh, irrigation um, saddle clamps that are um, you know that are you that are attached with various epoxy resins to the the um the the fracture fragments they probably don't provide as much um compressive force but they they can be very effective at uh, locking things into place and i haven't done many of these brendan only one or two where we've um used cable ties where the the cable tie ends the little um uh, uh, plastic end piece are arranged so that um, there's, uh, you know, the bit that the, the stuff locks into, they're epoxied onto the shell at various locations and then um, then they're pulled taut to provide compressive forces between loose fragments. So the, the techniques are largely limited only by your imagination. The take-home message in each of those techniques is that the actual fracture site is not covered and can continue to be observed and debrided as required if there is signs of infection. Yes. And the picture that I'll link to 
at the website for this particular podcast episode will have an example of that mark. It'll be one of those cable tie um, turtles that I was experimenting with a couple of different techniques and there's two different types of of occlusive sort of forces being used there. One is from a cable tie using picture hooks. Um, they sort of stick on picture hooks that you'd just stick on the wall that that, that supposedly come off if you need to remove that picture. Um, those th- 3M type picture hooks, except I used an epoxy type resin on there as well because the, the, the glue on those typical picture hooks don't work. And the other one is a variation on little hooks that are used in... Um, I think there are other sort of metal type picture hooks. So I was using various techniques. This poor turtle, wild turtle, was used as a bit of an experiment of all the different cable type type techniques. And some seem to work quite well. Others, um, the hooks or, or the little attachments for the hooks, um, not the cable ties themselves, um, fell off fairly early, Mark. So, um, and some people use, um, I've certainly used the circular wire technique again. Um, um, a lot of people like using the variations on all the dental um, sort of acrylics and, and those sorts of products um, um, that that you can um, play around with. So as you mentioned, it's sort of limited by, well, your imagination, isn't it, um, with some of these techniques with them. Um, but I think one of the other key factors with it is the length of time that you need to leave them on their mark. And, and how long is that? It's till they heal. And in reptiles, bones like this take a considerable amount of time to heal. You're, you're, I would be, you know, we normally think of... Fra- a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> we think of fractures in um, our companion animals as being six to eight weeks, but we would regularly have these in place for 12 weeks before we're confident that they're healed. Yes, it's and sometimes it's longer than that. Uh, one of the one of the tips that um, I find if you end up using lots of sort of um, um, glue, epoxy or, or glue, apart from not letting them seep into the areas and limiting the amount you can use, and same with the hooks and, and other variations. Um, if it's these wild ones, and some of these wild ones when we were treating them in the zoo, um, they were released, Mark, with these. With these, um, with the hardware still in there, we'd remove some of the hardware, but um, we we let them let them go. And you want to colour the um, the epoxy, or, or or not have a you know really bright white or yellow or, or, or fluoro orange <laughs> or yellow, um, or um, coloured sort of um, material on the especially on the on the um, carapace of that um, turtle there because I think it's screaming out to all the other animals um, in the environment, hey, look at me, Um, I've got my little fluoro vest on. um, and um, It's like you at the nightclubs, Brendan. uh, We won't go there, (laughs) (laughs) So, and it's one technique that they use at at least a couple of the zoos um, in that they do something simple like mixing a bit of grit or or uh, or, or sand, Mark, um, to to sort of colour the um, whatever product they're using on the shell for the repair to the same rough colour as the actual turtle shell. Um, so it blends in a bit of camo, Mark, a bit of camouflage um, for that animal. So they're certainly left in for, for weeks, if not months, um, for them. And then we reassess them. And how do we reassess them? Well, 
we get the animal back in and we, we repeat those radiographs and it's amazing how slow some of the healing of these these animals goes so um what do you think the general success rate for the mark is um, I like the, the – I think the critical factor, and you said it right at the beginning, is the case selection. I think you can get a high number of them to recover um, if you pick those cases at the beginning and, and you know, remove the ones that have significant compromise to the pleuroperitoneum, the ones that have had massive hemorrhage, the ones that have – uh, spinal damage, the crack. It might not be obvious that it extends to the the uh, vertebral canal um, on the outside, and so radiographs and assessment of the nerves are critically important. Um, if you select them well, I think the chances are good that you'll pull them through, but your heart will be broken, Brendan, if you pick those cases that uh, that have significant compromise because you'll put a lot of effort into them and they will go south. Yes, I think you've got to make a decision fairly early on. Um, Stabilise it first. Wait for that several days or week or two um, in order to see if there's any compounding issues going on there and then you make a tough decision sometimes fairly early on rather than... And some of that's experience, isn't it, Mark? It's it's, make, it's a bit like a lot of wildlife cases. It's You end up... Um, end up euthanizing a lot more than when you first um, jumped into dealing with wildlife because you soon realize um, you make make decisions, better decisions early on. Any other final thoughts on shell repairing Chelonians, Mark? I, I just want you to tell me when that experience is going to come around, when I can be more experienced and make those decisions. Uh, you'll... I'm thinking of a one-liner, but I can't think of one, Mark. <laughs> I think with that, we will say Guru from the Gurus, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.